Well, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 8. And uh, as you're turning there, I, I, I wonder if you're like me, if you're finding it easy in a season like this to complain. Recent news does not help the situation. Famous preacher J. Vernon McGee was once expressing some discomfort from some physical pain that he was in, and his wife said to him, you know, God doesn't allow complaining. And J. Vernon McGee quickly responded to his wife, no, he doesn't, but he does allow groaning. And groaning is something that is biblically appropriate, and that's exactly what Paul points us to this morning. He points us to a kind of groaning that is actually supposed to be characteristic of the Christian because it's characteristic of the world that we live in. In Romans chapter 8, I want to begin reading in verse 18. We see this groaning that helps us take the sufferings of this life and put them into their proper place, to put them into their proper context. And we see in this passage here the broader scope of groaning that exists in the world that we live in. Here's what Paul says, beginning in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who, are, who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As we saw last week, our security, our, our, our sense of safety, even in the gospel, is often impacted by not just our struggle with sin, but our struggle with suffering. If God loves me, if I'm truly His child, why, why am I suffering the way that I am? Why is life so hard? But this text, you see, reminds us that we're not alone in our suffering. It reminds us that we're not alone and there's something much bigger going on, that we are all groaning. All of creation is groaning. And maybe you saw this, but in this passage, there are actually three groanings that are mentioned. And the sense of groaning here, it signifies those who are in pain, 
It's often used for those who are in the throes of death, people who are are dying in the midst of a battle. It's used in the context of of a mother who's groaning in the process of of childbirth. It's something that, that can't even be put into words. It's this sometimes even inaudible expression of our hearts to groan. And the reason that we need to look at these three groanings is because, again, it helps to put our present sufferings in the proper context. It puts them in their place. It reminds us that, again, we're not alone in our sufferings, and better yet, it points us, listen, to the reality that we are all a part of God's ultimate redemption, that God is planning to redeem all things. We groan, but not without hope. And these groanings, they're not not just due to the present pain and suffering we experience. They're actually future-oriented. There was a groaning for something better, something we know that's coming. You see, it's a groaning for glory. Here, Paul puts our suffering into the context of hope and help, the future that awaits us. And we see here three groanings that point us towards our future glory. Notice first this, the creation is groaning. There's a global context when it comes to groaning. In verse 19 through 23, we see this so clearly. Again, Paul's contrasting this idea of the the present sufferings, and he's holding out to us this future hope of a glory that we can't even comprehend. It, It can't even be compared. It's going to be so good, so much better, that any kind of suffering we have here, regardless of how severe and painful it is, it will feel like nothing when we get to this place of glory. And he talks here about creation And he describes creation as as longing, as waiting, as groaning. You see, Paul writes from a cosmic perspective here about the reality of sin and its effects upon the world. Creation here is really just being used to describe nature as you look around the, the world, as you look around this physical creation. There's this eager longing, and that word there that Paul uses in the Greek, it's like somebody with a stretched out neck, like a child who's waiting at the window for their father to come home from work. They're peering out over or looking for a bus to come. You see, it's waiting, it's looking, it's longing. So how how does nature exactly wait or long or even groan? What exactly does that mean? Well, what Paul is doing here is, is he is personifying nature. This is like much of the poetry in the Old Testament. You know, trees clap and mountains are witnesses. You see, what's being done here is, is he's depicting creation like a person. And the point is that every part of creation is longing and groaning. It is waiting for things to be made right, to be good again like they once were. You see, the reason creation groans is right here in verse 20. Did you notice this? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
The word futility here is the same word that's used in the book of Ecclesiastes when the the New Testament, when, when the Old Testament is translated into Greek. They use this very same word to describe that sense of life uh, being in, you know, a vanity, a whisper. It's fleeting. It seems futile. It's like grasping for the wind. It never brings forth completion. It never delivers what it it seems to promise you. All is in vain. Everything around us is like a clock that's winding down. It's deteriorating. Every heart only has so many ticks. Every pair of lungs only has so many breaths. It's, It's in this state of futility, of deterioration. He says in verse 21 that it longs to be set free from its, look at this language, bondage to corruption. And the idea here, again, of futility is that creation, listen, it has not fulfilled the purpose for which it was made. It was not made, think about this, it was not made to decay, it was made to flourish. It was not made to be a place of death, it was made originally by God to be a place of life. How ironic is it that that the place that God created where life was supposed to flourish, where man was supposed to live eternally in the presence of God has now become a graveyard for humanity. You see, who subjected it to this futility? Do you notice what he says there? He, he says it was, it was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't creation's idea. It's not what creation wanted. But look who did this. But because of him who subjected it. Who's the him there? The him is God. God subjected his creation to futility. See, why why has God done this? The subjection is a judicial decree upon sin. You see, this is Paul's commentary right here on Genesis 3, 17 through 19, where Adam and Eve, listen, they they lived in the garden. Creation was, was bearing fruit and giving life, and Adam and Eve, in that one moment of rebellion, of refusing to submit to God, of deciding that they could be God in place of God, they were subjected to the curse that that brought, and that's what God promised would happen. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you shall surely die. Not only did their sin impact them personally, the curse was spread into all of creation. It impacted everything. There was cosmic corruption because of sin. I mean, so much so that Adam is told that the ground that he tries to work is going to be hard. He's going to work it with the sweat of his brow. It's going to be toilsome and difficult, and thorns and thistles are now going to overwhelm him. I was doing some yard work this week, and I was reminded as I was meditating on this passage and thinking about this, trying to get my my lawn back in good shape, and reminded of the fact that, listen, isn't it ironic that everything that you don't want to grow seems to grow so easily, and everything that you want to grow seems to take so much effort and work? That's, That's what sin has done. 
Sin has given us that kind of corruption. It's brought about a curse. And, and as I thought about this passage, I thought about this, you know, we, we should be people um, who, there's a lot of people who talk about, you know, going green and, and taking care of the environment. And as Christians, I think it's important that we understand that we should care about our environment. But I think we also need to understand, listen, that according to this passage, no government policy or amount of paper straws are ever going to fix the environment. The only cure for creation, according to the Word of God, is a future resurrection, a future recreation of the cosmos. The only hope for the world is that the curse would be completely and utterly reversed and extracted entirely and purged out of this earth and out of existence. That's what Paul means when he writes this in verse 19, that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And in verse 21, when he says this, that, that they're, they're looking to be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, all of creation's kind of future resurrection is connected to our future resurrection as believers in Jesus Christ. In other words, creation, in a sense, is looking at us and waiting for the day when God is going to come back, when Jesus Christ, our Savior, is going to return and raise the, the dead back to life into new, glorified, resurrected bodies, because on that day that we are made new, listen, all of creation is going to be made new. They're waiting for the fulfillment the final fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, right after the curse is leveled across the cosmos, the promise of one to come who's going to deal with the curse is given. And Jesus Christ has come, and he has dealt with the curse, and yet there is a future day coming when the curse will be finally eradicated. Jesus is going to return all of nature back to its purpose, and that purpose will coincide with the freedom, listen, of the children of God. You see, that means this, that the original Green New Deal is the gospel. The way that God is going to fix not only our hearts, but the universe, listen, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the end of this age, the curse will be fully and finally reversed, and Jesus has begun that by placing, listen, God has begun that by placing the curse upon his son. The curse doesn't just disappear. The curse is taken, and it is placed upon Jesus Christ, for cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. Jesus paid the curse and Jesus is now bringing a new age where men and women, listen, are changed and transformed from the inside out. And soon, listen, that reminds us, soon the world will be changed through him. The corruption and decay will be purged from the earth. There is a future salvation that will engulf the entire cosmos, reversing and transcending the consequences of the fall. And just so you know, it will not simply be a return back to the Garden of Eden. It will eclipse that in its glory. The scriptures give us a taste of some of this, and, and it depicts for us what this looks like. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, listen to what 
Isaiah writes, he says, on that day, listen, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little children shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Listen, the picture we have is a picture of restoration, of recreation, of perfect peace and harmony where the glory of the Lord covers the earth from sea to sea. In verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. See, this groaning, it's not hopeless. It's filled with hope, a future hope. And it's like... The, the suffering and the pain of childbirth. You see that? The only difference is, is there's, there's no epidural for the earth. You endure the pain, right? In, in pregnancy, and you see this all the time. You endure the pain because you know the beauty of what's to come. And in that moment, listen, of holding that precious child in your arms, the pain you just experienced seems to, to evaporate because the joy eclipses all of that pain in an instant. And listen, you know what that means? It means this, when you watch the news and and you see the groanings of this earth, you see another forest fire or a hurricane or a mudslide or a tornado, and you see just how nature devours nature, you see tragedy everywhere. When you see that as a Christian, here's what you should think. You, You shouldn't think catastrophe. You should be thinking contractions. You should look at that and think the pain is real. It's there, but there is a day coming where the joy of the birth of the new creation will dawn upon us. This reminds us, listen, that we, we shouldn't over-personalize our suffering. We need to put it in this global context. All of our suffering reminds us, listen, that everything is suffering because of sin, and it is longing, it is waiting, it is groaning to be made new, and that day is coming soon. And it's not just creation that groans. Look at this. Secondly, the church is groaning. Believers, Christians are groaning, and we groan together. There's a community context here. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's believers. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, in this hope, excuse me, we were saved. We get this, right? That we don't want to over-personalize our suffering, but, but we don't want to extract our personal suffering from the mix either. You see, suffering is intended by God to remind us of the grip that sin continues to have on this world and even on our own lives. Suffering is intended to show us our weakness, our frailty, and our need for rescue, our need for a Savior. As Christians, while we celebrate our salvation in Christ 
we rejoice in how God has freed us and saved us and washed us, cleansed us from our sins and given us new life here and now, we also know and believe the best is yet to come. This is not our best life now, and it won't be until we're with Jesus. We are awaiting, he says here, our adoption as sons. Now, we talked about adoption last week and how the Spirit of God actually reminds us that we are adopted children of God, but there's this unique tension that we experience in the Christian life. We experience the already and the not yet, and we live in this tension. Listen, well, we, we know we are adopted as God's children, and yet there is a future day where that reunion, so to speak, with our Father will take place. And that takes place at the redemption of our bodies. We've been given new life. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. But these bodies are breaking down. They're decaying. And one day we'll have a new resurrected body that is fit for eternal glory and eternal worship of God. And while we live in these broken bodies, we feel the pain, we feel the hurts, We experience the sufferings, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, economically. I mean, we feel it all over the place in this human existence. It's a constant nagging reminder of how fleeting this world and this life is, but how good and great the next will be. We long to be rid of the struggle with sin, the passions of the flesh that wage war, against the spirit within us. And so we groan, as the passage says here. Our groans, they express both present pain, but but a longing for future glory. Why? Because, Because inwardly, did you catch this? Inwardly, we have tasted something better than anything on the planet. God has deposited the Spirit of God within us. He's given us new life, and in that new life, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We know how good it is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We know how good it is to be in fellowship and communion with the God, the creator of the universe, and we know that there's nothing better than that, and that makes everything else in this world, it makes it seem like like nothing. We've tasted, because of the Spirit of God within us, something of the the beauty and the majesty and the power of the resurrection. We've been brought to life in part, and one day our, our groaning leads us to that day where we'll be brought to life in full. And there's a sense, if you're a Christian, that means that in in a sense, that taste of what God has given you and what you know is coming, it's actually, in in some senses, ruined us for earthly living. We can no longer live like the world lives. We can't live for the things of the world. We know they're not satisfying. We know they're empty. But I would say this too. We can enjoy the good gifts in this world better than anyone apart from Jesus Christ knows how to because we know the giver of every good gift. This is what Paul is talking about when he, he reminds us that we have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. In the Old Testament times, the people of God were called to bring the first fruits of the harvest. They go out into the field, and at the beginning of the harvest, they'd, they'd gather up uh, a portion of that harvest, and they'd bring it and offer it to the Lord. 
It was both the beginning of the harvest, but it was also the pledge that the full harvest would follow in due time. It was a reminder. The people of God were coming and saying, Lord, you have bountifully provided for us now, and it reminds us, Lord, that the best is yet to come. You've given us so much good now, but the fullness of the harvest awaits those who are your children. They didn't confuse, by the way, the first fruits with the whole harvest, yet they rejoiced as if they had the whole harvest already. Why? Because they they already had the first fruits. And when God put His Spirit in you as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have this same assurance, the same security. You are saved, but you're also, listen, you're not totally satisfied yet. You're waiting for the fullness of the harvest. It's that tension that causes us to groan. So let me ask you as a Christian, do you groan? Do you groan? Do you ache deep within? Are there points in your life where you're just like, Lord, Lord, I just, I want, I want out of this broken body. Lord, I, I want out of this sinful existence. Lord, I just want to be released from this present life to be in the presence of you, true life, in the fullness of the life that you offer. Your groaning can sometimes come across as being so negative, and yet this kind of groaning, listen, it's actually proof that you're a child of God. You recognize this world is not your home. Creation alongside us are, are waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. We're waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, and we're waiting for the day when we will be fully transformed. Listen, and on that day, we will radiate the glory of God. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We will see Him in His beautiful, blazing glory, and in that moment, we will be transformed to look like Him in all of that glory. We are striving right now as, as Christians to look more and more like Jesus Christ day by day. This is the goal of, of, of sanctification in the Christian life. But there's a day coming, listen, when, when you will look in the mirror and you will no longer see a, a, a shadow of what it might look like to be fully formed in the image of Christ, you're going to look in the mirror one day and you're going to say, finally, We're going to be perfect. We're going to be exactly like Jesus. In fact, Daniel chapter 12 says that we're going to shine like stars. Forget about shining bright like diamonds. Don't forget to bring your sunglasses. Matthew 13, 43 says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. David in Psalm 17, verse 15 said this, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, 
When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Loved one, a day is coming when we will be raised from the dead in new resurrection bodies. And we'll be just like Jesus. We'll be under Jesus' rule and authority, but we will share in His rule and authority. We will rule and reign with Him upon a new, resurrected and recreated earth. The whole creation on that day, listen, will sing and the trees will clap and the birth pains of, listen, of all the earthquakes and the birth pains of all the the divorces and all of the death and all of the the cancer and the birth pains of all the, the miscarriages and the abuse and the sin all of it will be done. And everything will be perfect forever and ever. Perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect glory. But all of this, it takes incredible patience, doesn't it? That's what he tells us here. He says, For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The patience he describes here is a patient endurance. It's like a marathon runner, knowing what's ahead motivates him to keep going one more step, one more step, just a little bit further. Almost there. Christian, the Bible says your salvation is nearer to you now than when you first believed. There's no utopia this side of the second coming of Jesus. We cannot make this earth into the new heavens and new earth. Only God can do that. And the promise of Scripture is that He will. And that promise is as sure as any other promise that God has made. Don't let that longing and that groaning and that waiting be a source of discouragement. Let it be a source of determination in your life. Know what's coming and let it fuel your Christian light. Live in light of the future resurrection of your body and of this earth. Let the hope of the gospel fuel your faithfulness now. This is what what Paul encourages us to do. He wants us to, to, to strive hard knowing what awaits us. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. In light of the resurrection, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Listen, there's work to do. The future is coming fast, and there's work to do in the here and now. This is a call, Christian, listen, to not waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't throw it away on meaningless things. Don't throw it away for the fleeting pleasures of this world. Throw your life into the hands of the Almighty God. Throw your life into the hands of God who can use you to do incredible things here and now for His glory, for His honor, and for His praise. If, if you're a youth, if you're a young person, and you're watching this today, let me encourage you. Listen, you, you are living right now with strength and vigor. 
You were not meant to waste your life playing video games and watching a screen all day and fooling around with a phone. None of that matters in the end. You were meant to rule the world. Embrace the Christian life, young person. Lean in to the grace and goodness of God. Know what it means to be fully committed to following Jesus Christ right now. Don't wait until you're older. Right now, throw yourself into following Jesus Christ. Work hard at whatever the Lord has given you to do. Love others. Serve the church of Jesus Christ and proclaim the gospel. If you're a midlifer like me, It's not too late for you. I don't know if you wasted a good portion of your life, but if God is is calling and knocking upon your door right now, and you're getting a wake-up call, listen, answer the door. Open it up to what God has for you. It's not too late. Don't throw away these years of your life. The purpose of your life is not to, to get lazy and simply seek comfort and ease. You're not called to be living for the next vacation or or simply living to pay off your mortgage or living for retirement. That's not what God's calling you to. He's calling you to so much more, so much better. Throw yourself into godliness. Throw yourself into building up the next generation of followers of Jesus Christ. Throw yourself into knowing God, into making disciples, into proclaiming the gospel. Dig in. Don't let up. And those of you who are in the later stages of life, maybe you feel a little bit sidelined and you're wondering what exactly you're supposed to do. Maybe you've got 20 years left. Maybe you've got 10. Maybe you've got five. Maybe you've got five months. You're trying to figure out what's next for me. The goal of your life, listen, is, is not retirement and relaxation, and I'm not opposed to those things. They have their proper place. The call is to look forward to what's coming with patient endurance, to use the remainder of the time that the Lord has given you for His service, for His glory. I want to call on you who are older to show us who are younger what it means to finish well, to serve the Lord to the very end. Show us. Give us an example to follow. Teach us what it means to live a life of faithfulness unto the Lord. Teach us what God has taught you and keep pointing us to the glory that awaits. Show us what it looks like to suffer well. If you're an unbeliever, you need to hear this. This life is not the end, there is more to come. And the hope of glory is held out to you now. You can know life here and now. You can know the freedom and forgiveness of sins, and one day you will know the freedom from the bondage and corruption of this world. But you can't have it without turning to Jesus. You can't have it without bowing the knee to Him. You can't have it without recognizing that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you are not. You must look to Jesus, the one, listen, who took the curse for you, He secured your future through the cross. He groaned on that cross so that the groaning of the curse could be lifted from you. Can I urge you today to run from sin and run to the Savior?
Find in Him life. Find in Him freedom. Find in Him a hope. Listen, a hope of what is to come and what is secure. Wait patiently for the day when you will see Him and be made like Him. Third and finally, the Comforter is groaning. The Comforter is is a title that's given to the Holy Spirit throughout the Scriptures. He, He is the great Comforter of our souls. And in verse 26 and 27, look at what it says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, that's God, he knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You can see in this one passage how God, the the, the triune God, is operating for your good on your behalf and for His glory. And the point of this is to see that, listen, you have a hope and you will have help in your suffering. The Holy Spirit expresses those things we feel but we cannot always articulate. He says those things that we want to say but we we can't mouth the words. He speaks those things He knows we need even when we don't. I mean, how, how incredible is this passage we actually have two intercessors. We're going to see this a little bit later in, in Romans eight thirty four. We have an intercessor who is in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, who intercedes for our sins. He's our advocate at the throne of God. He is declaring that we are innocent because he has taken our punishment. But we have, listen, we have an intercessor in our hearts. The Holy Spirit himself. These are not our groanings. Here's what I need you to see. These are not our groanings to God. This is God's groaning to God on our behalf. And it carries this idea of an unspoken groan. It's inaudible. You can't hear it, but you need to know that it's there for you. It's not speaking in tongues like some people want to try to force upon this passage. That's not what this is at all. There's no language here. That's the point. It's too deep for words, he says. It's beneath the surface. Because sometimes we, we, we all feel this, right? We feel like we, just, we don't know what to say to God. We don't know how to cry out, especially in the midst of, of suffering in this life. Maybe you're going through some kind of physical suffering or, or emotional suffering, or you're simply just suffering because you're looking at your sin and you want it out so bad, but you don't even know what to say. We kind of feel like this. Let me just throw this image up on the screen for you. We kind of feel like this, we're, we're, dear God, we got this jumbled up mess, we don't even know how to put it together, and I love this passage because it tells us here, listen, that the Spirit takes what we cannot say and brings it right into the presence of God, and God the Father hears exactly, exactly what we need prayed on our behalf by the Spirit of God. He knows what we need. He hears, and He responds accordingly, according to His will. The Spirit searches us and He takes into account all of our weakness, listen, all of our struggles, all of our pain, and He intercedes on our behalf. And God gives us exactly what we need in that moment. You can remove that from the screen there. 
And I would just encourage you just to think on these thoughts. Listen, in, in suffering, the greatest burden we bear is the feeling often of isolation. When we suffer, we, we feel so utterly alone in our pain, sometimes so much so that we, we can't find those words to pray. We just, we just don't know how to pray. I mean, I've, I've been in so much physical pain and emotional pain and spiritual pain in my life that I just, I literally don't know what to say. I can't even find words. And I know many of you, you've been there too. So much agony, you can't even figure out how to string two words together. There are times in our lives where we, we, we can't pray that the, the hurt is so deep, it's so raw. The phone rings and you find out the cancer is back. Car crash kills a loved one unexpectedly. A child turns their back on the faith that you raised them in. The Bible doesn't minimize our sufferings or our pain. It acknowledges it and it comforts you in it with the reminder, listen, that even in your darkest moments, you are not left alone. Even when you can't cry out to God, God cries out for you. When you don't even know what to pray, the Spirit of God knows exactly what to say. He knows exactly what you need. And you can be assured that God is working in your sufferings, listen, for your good in accordance with His perfect will. When you cry out why, you can't even figure out what's going on, God knows. Your suffering is never for nothing, and in your suffering, you are never abandoned. What a comfort. What a comfort it is to know that the divine comforter is caring for us, his children, in such a precious and powerful way. How secure should this make you feel? To know that the Spirit of God in you is groaning on your behalf. And listen, he's groaning because he's knowing and waiting and longing for the day. Listen, when all of the suffering you're experiencing will be fully eradicated, it will be gone, and only glory will remain. To know that God's Spirit within you is ministering to you and for you, what a joy, what a blessing. He is holding on to you in the midst of your suffering, holding you near to God, reminding you glory awaits just a little bit longer, just a little bit more. Our salvation is so secure not because, listen, not because of how tightly, isn't this a reminder? Not because of how tightly we hold on to God, but because of how tightly He's holding on to us. He's got an unbreakable grip on his children. All three members of the Trinity are actively involved in every part of our salvation from beginning to end, and he who began a good work in you, listen, even in the midst of your suffering, he is bringing it to completion all at the day of Christ Jesus. These groanings of the Spirit on our behalf, they remind us, loved ones, listen, that God himself is moving not just our lives, but all of history towards its ultimate climax and total redemption and recreation. All creation is longing. All creation is groaning, but a new creation is coming. And in that creation, the glory of the Lord will be the light within our midst 
we will shine like the stars. Because of the greatness of the coming glory and because of our weakness, we groan. Even the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf, waiting for that day. And one day, listen, our groanings will be replaced with glory. All creation is groaning, but a new creation is coming. In the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, we'll end on this. Here's what John writes for us. Cling to this, Christian. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God, you are good.